Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Expectations are a powerful force in life. I think all of us naturally set high expectations because we, we want the best possible outcome. But those are not always realistic expectations, and it doesn't take much for them to turn into unmet expectations, which leads to great disappointment. It's like going on vacation where you expect total rest and relaxation. You're not going to cook or clean or work. You're paying good money to just relax and unwind, no stress. But then there are things like flight delays, lost luggage, stormy weather, stolen credit cards, complaining children. If you have ever expected total bliss on a vacation, you probably learned the hard way that the deep disappointment of unmet expectations. That's one thing for expectations to be unmet because of unforeseen circumstances. It's another to just set totally unrealistic expectations from the beginning. Like a young high school grad enlisting in the military thinking boot camp will be a cakewalk. Or like some novice hikers attempting to summit Mount Whitney one day with no preparation. Such unrealistic expectations are just a recipe for failure. They're going to soon hit a brick wall of adversity. And being unprepared, it will lead to discouragement, disillusionment, and then eventually dropout. So for whatever reason, most of us don't do terribly well when we encounter the unexpected. I'm convinced the Lord Jesus knew this fact. And this explains why he told his disciples so often what to expect in following him. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. He knew the path of discipleship is paved with adversity. But if his disciples expected this to be a cakewalk, a walk in the park, then at the first sign of trouble, they would trip, stumble, even fall away. He didn't want that to happen. So he told them, full disclosure, here's what to expect in being my disciple. He told them often. Jesus was always honest with his disciples. In short, he led them to expect that they will be treated by the world just as he was treated by the world, which wasn't always great. Remember, he ended up on a cross. So when he tells his disciples to pick up their crosses to follow him, what do you think that means? He tells them in the world they can expect vehement, sometimes violent rejection. They could expect opposition, especially if they were to be faithful witnesses, that the brighter your light shines, the more the darkness wants to put it out. You recall Christ's parable of the sower. I trust there's seeds sown by rocky places, which represents those who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. But as soon as he says affliction or persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. I mean, they, they didn't sign up for suffering. They expected that following Jesus would get them their best life now. But when it doesn't, they fall away. This is not a hypothetical situation. It has happened countless times ever since. But when it does, you can't blame Jesus. He, he warned you. He set the expectations. And far be it for, or from us or for us today to not repeat those, to, to pass on those expectations that all might count the cost and following him because they still apply. And that's something we're going to be challenged to do in our text this morning, Matthew 10, verses 16 through 22. In Matthew 10 here, we have the second major sermon or discourse that Matthew records. This is the commissioning of the 12 disciples to go out and preach their first mission trip. 
the Lord intended for these disciples to represent his name to the world. And here he's giving them special instructions for how to do that. Now, we've already gone through verses 5 through 15. These opening words are very much specific to that first mission of the twelve. As we've seen that they were only sent to the cities of Israel, forbidden from reaching any of the Gentiles. This was a limited, short-term mission. The disciples were to work wonders, preach the kingdom to fellow Jews. Jesus assured them that they would encounter some who were worthy, who believed, and would then take care of all their material needs. But we found at the end, the last few verses, he started to warn them that not everyone would receive them. Now, they will also be met with rejection, sometimes by entire towns. Jesus does not paint a rosy picture of this first mission trip as if every city will roll out the red carpet and have a parade for these disciples who come bearing good news. No, some will be found faithful, but they will encounter much opposition and rejection. And that, that picture, that expectation is only heightened as we continue. It only grows from there. Starting in verse 16, the rest of this discourse is all about opposition. Jesus further elaborates on what they can expect representing his name. And it's, it's a bleak picture. And we're talking persecution, arrest, even death. I mean, there's, there's hope. It's not all bad. The Lord will strengthen them and he will safely deliver them to his eternal kingdom. But look, by no means will this life, this mission here below be carefree or trouble-free. You should know, things start to change in verse 16 and from then on. This will become clearer as we go, and especially next week, but it is evident that Jesus envisioned this short-term, limited, local mission of the 12 to be a paradigm for the long-term, full-time, global mission of the 12 and all disciples thereafter. Jesus knew that after the cross, a a believing community of his disciples would grow, albeit under fire. They would face continued opposition. And so therefore, while Christ's words here are still relevant to the 12 in that first mission, they are by design also meant to equip and prepare the church. Christ's words from here on out speak bluntly to what all disciples can expect if they are to be his faithful witnesses in a dark world. Not every disciple will have to pay the ultimate cost, but if such opposition comes your way, you can't say you weren't warned. In addition, some of Christ's words here appeared to be prophetic, looking forward to a future time of intensified opposition. That's something we will see more next week. All this goes to say, though, it will be evident to you, starting in verse 16 here, that the rest of this second discourse is meant to set the expectations, really, of of all disciples and all ages, which is why Matthew records it for us. For good reason, Matthew 10, this chapter has been regarded as some of the the greatest teaching on discipleship in the whole New Testament. Now, today we're just in verses 16 through 22. It's where things start to take a turn. But here we find Jesus giving three expectations of how his disciples will be treated. Three expectations of how his disciples will be treated, along with three responses. He doesn't leave us hanging. Three expectations, three responses. This is all about how believers can expect the world to treat them as they bear his name. 
and then how they ought to respond. And to the degree that we find ourselves living as bright lights in a dark world, well, we'll find these expectations carry right over for us today. So three expectations of how disciples will be treated in the world and three responses. The first expectation, you could say, is aggressive opposition. Aggressive opposition. There's a famous verse, starting verse 16 here. We're going to read as we go. But he says, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This is one of Christ's most memorable sayings. And like he could have just told them, like, hey, guys, hey, expect aggressive opposition. But would you remember that? I mean, just with a simple word picture, he implants this image in our mind that just stays there and says everything we need to know. Like sheep in the midst of wolves. There you go. That's what to expect. Enough said. This needs little explanation, but we'll make a few points. Obviously, Christ's disciples here are like sheep, which is a familiar image for God's people. And here, what's being emphasized is the the weakness, the vulnerability of sheep. Sheep are totally dependent on their shepherd to provide and to protect them. Sheep are entirely defenseless. They don't have speed or agility or horns or claws. They don't even have camouflage. I mean, they're white. They literally stand out like a target. And the wolves, on the other hand, are the most notorious predators of sheep. They're thoroughly equipped with sharp teeth, a strong bite, and a single wolf could probably ravage an entire flock. And so then, what happens when you put them together? What happens when you get sheep in the midst of wolves? I mean, it kind of sounds like a slaughter. At the very least, it represents imminent danger. And that is indeed the case. There's a little sugarcoating this. It, It sounds like Jesus is giving his disciples an expectation of aggressive opposition. And that is what he's doing. The only consolation here is that these sheep are being sent out by Jesus, who is the good shepherd. He is good. He knows what he's doing. He's not just senselessly sending his sheep out to slaughter or putting them in harm's way. And of course, he has good purposes in sending his sheep out. That really gets to the purpose of this first mission and really the church's mission ever after, which is what? It's to witness, to to save souls. We know that God is sovereign over that work, but we also know he sovereignly uses means. And so why do you think Jesus is sending the 12 out to preach? Because the preaching of the gospel is the God-ordained means for some of these wolves to be supernaturally transformed into sheep. Just like Jesus said in the previous verses, that there's going to be some who believe. That as these witnesses go out by God's grace, some will hear the gospel, humble themselves, repent of their sins, and trust in Christ. They'll become his disciples. People even like Saul, who turned into Paul, the fiercest wolf, becomes a great sheep. This is what happened to all of us, all by God's mercy. And we are now to share the gospel that others might receive that mercy, knowing that a remnant will believe. But like Jesus also said, we know that Many others will not believe. There will be plenty of wolves who remain dead in their sins, hardened in rebellion, loving the darkness. They hate the light, which means when they see sheep proclaiming the light of Christ, they want to put it out. This is what happened to the first disciples. It still happens. 
For now, just, just put this on your list of expectations as you prove to be a faithful witness of Christ in a dark world. Expect opposition, even aggressive opposition. But Jesus doesn't leave us without telling us how to respond to this. As verse 16 continues, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Gives us another word picture, a couple more animals informing us how we have to respond. Sheep are so senseless, they actually might wander right into a wolf's den. Here Jesus is telling us that while we are yet to be meek, and vulnerable like sheep. We're not to be dumb like sheep. We don't glamorize or run into persecution. And now we're to be shrewd as serpents. In the ancient world, just snakes overall were considered cunning, crafty, cautious, shrewd creatures. And this is how we are to relate to a world that hates us because they hate our master. Like a serpent, we are to pick our battles, you might say, know when to strike. We're to witness but there is a skill in just saying the right thing at the right time. We're called not to be obtuse or oblivious or foolish, but sensible and wise, sharing the message of Christ in a winsome manner. It's, it's just like Colossians 4.5 explains. Colossians 4.5 says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. And then verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This is a call to be strategic. Like don't be needlessly inflammatory before the lost. That's only going to plug their ears to the gospel and invite harm. No, just make the most of the opportunity. It's about having a sanctified common sense in dealing with the wicked so that you might reach them. But also be sanctified in a snake's being so crafty also carried the reputation of being evil or deceitful, malicious. But obviously that, that's not part of our model. That, that shouldn't be our picture. And so Jesus balances out our response with the second half, shrewd as serpents, yet all the while innocent as doves. Doves, you know, are the image of gentleness. They're harmless birds. And likewise, we are not called to fight fire with fire. We're told to be shrewd so as to avoid unnecessary affliction, but if it comes our way, like we don't pick up the sword and fight back, we don't return fire. And so always maintain your integrity, not responding to affliction with your own sin or lies or compromise. This is perfectly captured in Philippians 2.15, which says, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. There you go. That's your verse explaining what this all means. This world is dark, crooked, perverse. We are to be straight, holy, lights. This is about just living above reproach before the lost, which is not just for elders. It's for all believers. That's because Jesus knows nothing defangs the gospel like hypocrisy. So he says, be innocent. You put this all together, we're being told to expect a degree of aggressive opposition by the world. We expect it, but in response, be wise, shrewd, sensible disciples. Witness the gospel of Christ in a, in a winsome manner. 
not shrinking back in fear, but also not needlessly inciting the wicked. Speak the truth in love and just, just let the gospel do all the offending. The gospel itself is offensive. It will do all the offending. Don't offend by your personality or your hypocrisy. Let the gospel offend. I think the Apostle Paul perfectly captures the sentiment of this saying over in 1 Corinthians 9. You don't have to turn. I'll, I'll read this for you, but that's where he says this, 1 Corinthians 9.21. Remember when he said, to the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. What he means is Paul knew he was free from the law of Moses now that he had come to Christ and the law of liberty. But look, when he had an opportunity to witness Christ to Jews, he's not going to eat bacon and rub his liberty right in their faces. That would only incite them. Instead, making the most of the opportunity, he would, he would accommodate their ways. He would restrain his liberty. He would eat what they eat, act like they act in a non-sinful manner that he might just gain this window to speak the gospel. He wasn't going to close that window by his own personality, his wants and likes. No, thereafter, the gospel might offend them, and that happened. But hey, so be it. There's no changing that. We don't compromise that. Because we also know that the same gospel might save them. And Paul did this, he said, that I might win some. Likewise, it says in verse 21, to those who are without the law, as without the law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Now, he wasn't going to resort to sinfulness to win over the lawlessness. Remember, we remain innocent as doves. But he, he knew he could still accommodate just the non-sinful ways of the lost, just to endear himself to them, gain this, this audience. This is all a means to an end of just getting that window flying through that window to share the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I might, may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That is what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples to do here. And that includes us. There's risk involved but Jesus is not outright sending his sheep off to slaughter. No, rather, as we see the snarling teeth of wolves, just we're to conduct ourselves with wisdom and holiness as we share the gospel. Just finding some way to deliver the payload of the gospel message, which alone has the power to transform some of these wolves into fellowship. That's our mission and goal, and we must be faithful in that. But first, we're told here in verse 16 to expect uh, aggressive opposition. Secondly, a second expectation, starting in verse 17, institutional opposition. Institutional opposition. What else we are to expect? Verse 17 just begins, and he says, but beware of men. So he confirms he's not actually talking about wolves, but men. Central command after this is beware, just be on guard, be watchful. This is in the present tense, indicating standing orders. Look, wolves are cunning too. They'll look for ways to silence our testimony, diminish our influence, defame our master. And so we're told to watch out. Do not not naively entrust yourselves to such men or just put yourself right in their crosshairs. 
If you recall back from verses 14 and 15, Jesus started alluding to the fact that as he sends his disciples out, they're not going to be accepted by everyone. Some people would reject their message, at which point he told them to do what? It's like, move on, shake the dust off your feet and just move on. But that's not really the end of it because here he's letting on that, you know, some people are not going to let you move on. They're not going to let you get away with it. On top of rejecting the message, they're going to go after the messenger. It's not going to be so easy just to walk away. This happens on many levels. And so first, we're going to learn about the institutional level. That the, the institutions of men, we can expect those to turn on disciples. That's what he says, verse 17. He says, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. Now, when you see mention of courts, I bet you naturally think of civil authority. That's not what he's talking about here. That's verse 18. Verse 17 is talking about religious authority. Jesus is saying that the institution of established religion will oppose true disciples. So the first branch of institutional opposition we can expect is religious institution, established religion. See the word courts in verse 17? In the Greek, it's just the plural form of the word Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin referred to the Jewish Supreme Court. But Sanhedrins in the plural refers to their many lower courts. These were the, their smaller tribunals scattered throughout all the cities of Israel. They consisted of 23 judges. They handled lesser crimes. The Romans let occupied nations maintain some of their own you know, ethnic and religious laws. And so the Jews handled local crimes or disputes in the Sanhedrins, in these local, smaller, regional courts. And these courts were held at the synagogue. Don't think of the ancient synagogue like a church building you meet at once a week. No, the Jewish synagogue was, was the town hall. It was the center of religious, social, civic life. It was their courthouse. And so look, when Jesus mentions in verse 17, courts and synagogues, to the disciples, they would have immediately understood he's talking about religious opposition. Just like the religious leaders opposed Jesus as he exposed their false system of works, righteousness. So they're going to oppose his disciples. And so then Jesus warns his disciples that you're going to be handed over to these courts. Handed over is a term speaking of arrest, the same word used when Jesus was arrested, handed over. When he stood before the great Sanhedrin. But he knows that preaching Jesus as the Christ, it's going to be met with opposition by the Jews, by the Sanhedrins. They'll be brought before the courts and they'll be punished. It won't stand. What's the punishment? Verse 17, you'll be scourged in their synagogues. This is not just a regular beating. This is the, the well-known 39 lashes. It's what the Jews did in punishment. It's one short of the maximum given in Deuteronomy 25.3, just in case they miscounted, they didn't want to violate God's law. So 39 lashes out of 40. The Apostle Paul, you might recall, says later on, because of his witness of Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians 11.24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Those were all probably in synagogues. And so look, once again, Jesus is giving his disciples an expectation of opposition, first and foremost, by religious institutions. I mean, you might think that, hey, like, 
fellow religious people would, wouldn't be so opposed to God's work. But no, the Jews had this religious establishment that had become quite corrupt. And the same would happen with the church, from the Roman Catholic Church even to Protestant churches. So anytime power and greed and control get mixed in there and infect these institutions, you'll find them pretty soon thereafter actually persecuting the faithful. We're talking about those who hold to a form of godliness but have denied its power, 2 Timothy 3, 5. And so Jesus is telling us to, to watch out and basically expect the wolves in sheep's clothing to be the first ones to come after you. It's sadly true that the faithful often find their fiercest opposition from within the walls of the established church. So he's telling us Christians can expect institutional opposition. On the one hand, that includes religious institutions. And on the other, it does include civic institutions, i.e. government. And that is verse 18. He, he continues and says, And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. The apostles would live this out firsthand. Paul, for example, stood before the Roman rulers Felix and Festus and even Emperor Nero himself. Why, though? Why does Jesus tell his disciples to expect to be brought before civil authorities? Well, two reasons are given in, in verse 18. For one, Jesus says, it's, it's for my sake. Really, this institutional opposition, it's being directed toward Jesus. The disciples are being handed over because of their identification with Jesus. It's just like Jesus said in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is also what Paul meant when he said over in Colossians 1, 24, he said that in my body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He did not mean that like he's vicariously suffering for people or Jesus didn't finish his work. He's just saying that like the wicked, they did not get their fill in pouring out their hatred on the Lord, on his body. So they'll happily just keep it going on his followers. And Paul had the scars to prove that. Look, in God's providence, this may never happen to you. There are seasons of peace in places where the gospel has spread. Amen to that. But at the same time, we know that even, history has shown us that even Christian strongholds can also turn back to the darkness. You know, just this past week in England, London, the, the same England that gave us great reformers, Puritans, Spurgeon. This past week, they updated their, I think, federal prosecution guidelines, which now state that parents can be charged with domestic abuse for refusing to pay for their child's transgender treatment or for refusing to use their preferred pronoun. And for Christians there who can't go along with this and deny the name of the Lord, they're going to have some trouble. But look, the Lord has another reason for allowing his sheep to stand before wolves. He says in verse 18, this is happening as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. The Lord will sovereignly turn all this opposition into opportunity. When you think about it, like disciples being hauled before kings and governors, it sounds scary, but it also sounds like a pretty amazing opportunity to witness the gospel at the highest levels. 
I mean, how else would these lowly new Christians ever get an audience before world rulers and be able to influence them with the truth? And this is exactly what happened in the early church. How do you think Paul gained access to Caesar, to Nero, only as a prisoner? It was by, only by Paul's Roman imprisonment that he even made it to Rome. And there during his two-year house arrest while he awaited trial, he was able to, to preach the gospel unhindered, influencing many. And you know, he writes a book of Philippians from that first Roman imprisonment. He testifies this in Philippians 1.12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The gospel went further because he was imprisoned. He adds that the cause of Christ had become well known in Caesar's household. It never would have happened otherwise. He even mentions that some from Caesar's household believed. They're not believers hidden in Caesar's household. That's, that's pretty amazing. So look, despite expecting institutional opposition, we're to take comfort in the fact that the Lord will, will use this as a profound gospel opportunity. Now still, though, how, how are we supposed to do this? How are we expected to testify? These disciples were mostly uneducated fishermen. Now, how are they going to stand trial before kings? Just imagine you've been falsely accused of a crime. You're made to stand trial, and you have to represent yourself with no lawyer. The other side is stacked with lawyers. Like You, you can imagine the, the anxiety, the fear, the pressure. You don't know what to say. You don't know how this works. How, how can you give a capable testimony? Well, while Jesus tells us to expect institutional opposition, Again, here he tells us a second response, how to respond, and it comes with a very special promise. That's verse 19, 20. He says, but when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Jesus does not say if they hand you over, but when, knowing that this is not just a possibility that this will happen to some disciples. And then what? He says, do not worry specifically about how or what you are to say. This is a comforting word from the Lord. You don't need to fear or worry about what you're going to say. Why not? He says, it's going to be given to you in that hour. You're going to speak, yeah, but it won't be you speaking anymore. This amazing promise, verse 20, that the Spirit your Father will speak in you, through you. That God through the Spirit will give you just the choice words you need in that moment of dire straits. That God will turn your trial into this opportunity to witness his gospel. Now, I have to point out just a quick side note. Throughout church history, many a pastor has used this verse to argue that he does need to prepare for a sermon. Right? This, the truly spirit-filled preacher will get up there and the spirit will just give him the words for the moment. I don't know if you've ever heard such extemporaneous sermons. They, they don't sound very inspired. It's a good excuse to work on your golf game, though. But I trust you can see how quite out of context that is. This passage has nothing to do with the regular preaching of God's word where the man of God is told to labor long over the scriptures, knowing the spirit can work just as much in our preparation as in our delivery. But no, this is a clear promise of comfort and help for those whose lives are on the line due to persecution. 
This is an extreme case, but look, this has happened in the past, and it will happen in the future, that a believer is handed over and made to testify before authorities. There's no preparation for that. There's no real preparation for such a moment. But here, know that the triune God will be with you and will turn you into his mouthpiece to speak words you never thought possible, to testify boldly and powerfully the glory of Christ. We really see this promise fulfilled in the apostles later on. I mean, did not Peter and Paul stand before kings and governors and testify of Christ? Peter especially, he was, he was this little scared lamb before the cross. He's denying his master. He's running away. But after the cross, we find him like preaching like a lion. The difference is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And God gave Peter all the strength he needed in the moment. Acts 4.13, Peter preaches again after being arrested powerfully. And it says his opponents were amazed because they knew he's untrained and uneducated. But how does he speak with such power? Well, we know why. And you need to know all you need to be used by God is just faith and faithfulness. He'll do the rest. But this really gets to the point of of Christ's words here. Why is Jesus saying all this? Overall, he's setting their expectations. Look, as you go out and preach, you're representing his name. You can expect to be treated like he was, which means being mistreated, arrested, put on trial. This is not going to happen to every single disciple ever, but as a rule, they can expect it. They need to count that cost. Are they willing to undergo such institutional opposition for Christ's sake? Are you willing to bear this cost if it it so happens for his name's sake? But beyond this, Jesus is also communicating what is required for this mission, namely just a total dependence on him. No disciple is ready for this mission. There's no preparation for this, really. That's why in the previous passage, he told his disciples to go with with no preparation. What's the point? They're going to have to be in total dependence on him anyway for such a mission. But they need his power through his spirit. They're going to find any effectiveness. If they would just be faithful and faith-filled, he will work mightily through them. That's what they need to learn. We need to learn same thing. Now we're not done though, knowing that it's one thing to be opposed by institutions, you know, people who don't know you. It's another to be opposed by your own family members. And it's one thing to be arrested for Christ. It's another to be put to death. Yet both of these escalations come together in the third expectation. Number three here, the third expectation, familial opposition. Familial opposition. This is verse 21. He says, brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child. And children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Just to remind you, this is Jesus speaking. You can see how this is really ramping up here. The word for betray Verse 21, it's, it's actually the exact same word as hand over, back from verse 19. This word can sometimes mean betray, and it's a good translation here. If you were arrested for preaching Christ in the public square and some stranger was, you know, coming after you, you would not call that betrayal. I mean, it's persecution, but I mean, you don't know this guy, he doesn't know you, it's not betrayal. 
But if, if a family member, like a sibling you grew up with, or one of your own parents is handing you over, you're expecting like, hey, a little family loyalty will at least keep you from handing me over. But when you think about like children rising up against their parents, turning them in, they're put to death. It's what it says. That's talk about the ultimate betrayal. This betrayal, as wild as it seems, this has happened all throughout church history. It's especially prominent when someone comes to Christ in the household of another religion. Back in 2019, a Muslim in Egypt named Muhammad came to faith in Christ. Genuinely, he was baptized, he started attending church. But a little while later, he was killed by his family in an honor killing after he posted to Facebook acknowledging his conversion. And in a shame-based culture that brings shame on the family, they can't let it stand. They killed him. The same thing happened a month ago in Uganda. A 28-year-old woman converted to Christ through some Christian neighbors, and she joined them for church that morning. It was a Sunday. Later that evening, her father found out, and he blinded her. and She died from blood loss. So She was a Christian for just one day. This type of thing still happens all the time, worldwide. This is just part of the risk of being sheep in the midst of wolves. But overall, this is what Jesus tells his disciples to expect. And I'll put it together, verse 22. This is, these are hard, hard words. You will be hated by all because of my name. Now, obviously, hated by all means all without uh, distinction, not all without exception. But this is just this general expectation that, that those living in the world, they're going to take their hatred of Christ out on his followers. You're, you're not going to be universally liked. If you want to be a Christian, just expect you will not be universally liked. I know that for some people that's their greatest fear, rejection. The only way you're going to avoid this hatred, hatred is just to just shut up about Christ. Put, put the basket over the lamp. Don't say anything. A, a social gospel that's no problem. You just want to feed people, help the homeless, do charity. The world can handle that. They'll leave you alone. But you start bringing up Christ's gospel, like the actual good news, the minute you let that light of Christ shine from under the basket, you're going to find the darkness doesn't like it. Jesus said in John 3, 19 20, he said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Jesus knew it. He said it. You know, when this happens to you, though, or to whoever it happens, it, there's, there's one consolation. Like, don't take it personally. Jesus is saying you're going to be hated because of his name. Not necessarily your name, what you did, what you said. It's, it's all because you're with him. You're speaking his words. You're sharing his truth. And that's why they'll, they'll hate you. When you come to Christ... Truly, you take his name. You take his new name. You're a Christian, a little Christ, a follower of Christ, meaning a disciple. And for that, the world will hate you. John 15, 18 through 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. 
Look, I'm telling you, like I said at the beginning, Jesus, he says stuff like this all the time. He really was trying to warn his disciples, not just here in Matthew 10, all the time he's, he's telling them this, this is what to expect. This is the real cost of discipleship. He gave them many like cold showers of truth of how they're going to be treated in this age if they're going to take his name. He told them to expect opposition, expect aggressive opposition, expect institutional opposition, even expect familial opposition. But hey, there's, there's a third response, even with this last point. He says in verse 22, third response to keep in mind, he says, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. You know, as, as often as scripture brings up the reality of persecution, so it brings up the response of endurance. Patient endurance is just kind of the name of our game. We're not told to pick up a sword and fight back, but to patiently endure, just like Jesus did. Now, James the half-brother of Jesus, he really emphasizes this in his epistle. He starts James by saying this, James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And at the end of his letter, he comes back around to talk about believers who are being persecuted, even put to death for their faith. And what's the response? James 5, 7. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. He says in verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He mentions Job. He says in verse 11, we count those blessed who endured. It's just about endurance. This is how we must ultimately respond to all affliction. Those who suffer and fall away, they just show their true colors as seed sown on the rocky places. Those who suffer for Christ's name and endure gain the greatest and strongest assurance possible, the proof of their salvation, which Peter says in 1 Peter is more valuable than, than gold. How long must you endure? Until the end, he says, it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, this is an interesting phrase because it means several things. Saved, does that mean physical deliverance or spiritual salvation? It can mean both. And the end of what? The end of this first mission trip, the end of your suffering, the end of your life, the end of the age. This is actually a good place to step back and consider that the bigger picture of what Jesus is saying in this, this whole chapter. I'm like, what do we make of this teaching? Because if, if you're with me, this is... This is a big, hard pill to swallow. Like, are these really the expectations of discipleship like we should have today? Wasn't this all just for the 12? Now, if you've been observant, it should already be evident that what Jesus says, starting in verse 16, no longer merely applies to that first mission trip of the 12. Just the scope of his warnings has clearly expanded. For example, in this first trip, Remember, he was sending the 12 to preach only to the cities of Israel. He forbid them from going to the Gentiles. But how then are they really going to have an opportunity to stand before kings and give a testimony to Gentiles? It seems like this anticipates their broader mission to the Gentile world. Also, regarding that the first mission, 
there is zero indication that the disciples received any of this treatment. They were not handed over or flogged or brought before kings. They were not betrayed by family. They certainly weren't put to death. In other words, none of what Jesus told them to expect actually applied to that first short-term mission trip. None of this seemed to happen. But everything he says here, like for sure, fully, literally applies after the cross. I mean, you read verses 16 through 22, it just reads like the book of Acts. This is precisely how the apostles were treated after the cross. So unless you want to argue that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about, it's safe to conclude that Jesus intended these words to reach beyond that first mission. They're meant to set the expectations of the disciples for their greater global mission. This is simply what they can expect as his disciples once this church has begun in this present evil age. This is going to apply to the 12, and it's also going to apply to all the disciples after them who carry on the mission. In these verses, they, they truly read like the life story of Paul. This is exactly what happened to Paul. He was not among the 12. But don't forget that Jesus was a prophet, and I think there's no doubt that his words carry a prophetic significance here for the church age. Now, how far do they go? That's something we'll explore next week as verse 23 takes another turn. He talks about the Son of Man coming back. That's more than we can tackle with the few minutes we have left. We'll save that for next time. But it's safe to say for now that as, as you as a Christian today must endure to the end. And by that we mean at, at least the end of your trial, certainly the end of your life. You must finish the course to receive the crown of life. You must hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, firm to the end. That is the ultimate and final proof of salvation. You have to endure in Christ to the end. As we just reflect on Christ's teaching overall here, we can say this. At different times, just kind of when, when the leaven of the gospel has permeated a nation, it is possible for Christians to know relative peace. Just the threat scripture calls the world has not and never will be eradicated in this age, but look like America in the 19th and 20th centuries, what we all take for granted. Christians can know relative peace. You've not had to fear any of this cost past couple hundred years. But keep in mind that in the past 2,000 years, as this gospel has spread throughout the nations, so has opposition. And don't forget that the tares grow up right alongside of the wheat. And so what many thought was once unfathomable is now pretty close to being a reality in the 21st century that Christians in America might be faced with just the full cost of discipleship once again. The point is this, and this holds true for the rest of this discourse. Jesus is not saying, oh, look, every Christian needs to get ready because you're all going to die for my name's sake. You're all going to be martyred if you follow me. He's not guaranteeing persecution without exception. But in God's providence, that bill might come due in your lifetime. And the true disciple must be willing to pay it. You must count the cost and accept it to even be his disciple, whether it comes or not. But know that that bill has come due a lot throughout church history, probably more than you know. Just read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Just consider the fact that in the 20th century, more Christians were killed for their faith 
than in the previous 1,800 years combined. Most Americans are oblivious to this, but that just means you don't travel the world. Travel, and you will see how millions of Christians are still confronted with this cost in these verses on a daily basis today. But you need to accept what Jesus will say near the end of this chapter, looking at verse 38. He says, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And a true discipleship it works like this. It's not where you're just you clinging to your life and hoping that like, if the day ever comes where you have to choose like your life or Jesus, you'll hope, you, you hope you'll choose Jesus in that day. No, rather just right now. Today, from, from the day of salvation, you die to self. You crucify self. You lose your life. You, just, you submit to his will as Lord. And now the rest of your life is your will be done. You have died to self in Christ. You have been raised to new life in Christ. And so you're happy to pick up this cross and follow him, whatever it means. Whatever that cost is, you'll pay it because he's worthy. And like verse 28 says, you no longer fear those who kill the body. We'll see that in a few weeks, but they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Your soul is secure in Christ. There's nothing left to fear. That sounds like a true disciple, one who will be steadfast and immovable, one whom the Lord will use as a bright light. You know, I have to say at the end here, with, with Jesus painting such a high cost of discipleship, though, it's, it's fair to ask, like, why would anyone want to follow Jesus? Who's going to sign up for this? If this is the cost, why would anyone become a Christian? But I think it's also good for us to be reminded that, that the gain far outweighs the cost. First, we've seen how all the danger here is mitigated by the Lord's promises. We've learned that, look, your sheep emits wolves, but the good shepherd is the one sending you out, and he is good. He knows what he's doing. We're in his hands. He'll be with us. His spirit will give us the words to speak. As we endure, we will be saved. Even if we are devoured by wolves and lose our lives, that's not a problem. The Savior was killed. He conquered the grave. He, he promises to raise us from the dead. That's no problem. You need to know that the blessings of following Christ far outweigh the earthly cost, whatever it might be. Just like Paul said, who, I mean, come on, he paid the highest cost of discipleship, but he still says in 2 Corinthians four seventeen, he calls it momentary light affliction, and it has, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I think I can safely guarantee that every believer who has endured and finished their race of faith would tell you that it's all worth it. And as a final thought, just know that our Savior, our Shepherd, He, he walked this path first. You look at verses 16 through 22, and you might think it reads like the life testimony of Peter or Paul but know that it's, this is the testimony of Jesus first. So much of the language here is the exact same language to, that's used of his road to the cross. That Jesus first was the Lamb of God led to slaughter. Jesus first was handed over to the Sanhedrin and scourged. Jesus first was brought before kings and governors testifying to Gentiles. 
Jesus first was betrayed unto death, and Jesus first was hated by all. This is simply the way of the cross, which comes before the crown. But we know that this good shepherd laid down his life for us, for all of his sheep, that he might give eternal life to them. So if you've learned anything, learn to just cling to this Christ. Deeply trust this Christ by faith. Count him worthy of your life. You've, you've seen the cost, count it, and then accept it. It is worth it. Any cost is worth it. Because this Savior is the only one who can and will lead you to life everlasting. We'll give the Lord the final words. He says in John 16, 33, says, These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we exalt you and your Son, Christ, and your Spirit for the word we have today and the promises given to us. We know we deserve nothing good from you. All that we have is by your hand of mercy. And that includes our salvation first and foremost, how you sent the Savior to die first for us, to suffer all this scorn and rejection and shame and ultimately death and your own wrath that we might be forgiven of our sins and reconciled. You've saved our souls. In this fallen world, we'll still face the first death, but this Christ saved us from the second death. There's nothing really left for us to fear. He's conquered all and We have resurrection awaiting for us. So what's left for us to do but to be your faithful witnesses and servants? This is your will. We submit to it. This is your purposes. And I pray you convict us all to to happily embrace them, that, that we have a purpose here below to live, enjoy this life, but at the same time serve you, that others might know, that the nations might be be glad that the Christ has come. You've told us not everyone will receive this report. Many will stay and choose the darkness and, and make us suffer. And we can't control that, but we can simply be faithful, trusting you and your spirit to guide us. I pray you embolden all of us. We don't know what will come in our own nation this next year or decade. Who knows? We need not worry, but we do need to trust you and, and be emboldened now that whenever the day comes, we will be faithful. We trust you for that. Work in us, convict us, and empower us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.